you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 18. John 18, and we will be in verse 28 through the end of the chapter. We have been in John's gospel for right around a year now, if I'm not mistaken. We did a fellowship of the word in John's gospel in January of last year, and then launched into this series. And just have a few um, sermons left in this. We'll be here uh, looking at Pilate today, and we'll also talk about Pilate, uh, Jesus before Pilate, uh, next Sunday as well, and slowly uh, marching towards the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, Last week, we watched in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll remember, as Jesus began this journey of willingly walking into the jaws of death for us. He was led from the garden to Annas, and then from Annas to Caiaphas, both called high priests, both representing the religious authority there in Jerusalem, and having found him guilty of blasphemy, they then took him before the Roman authority, who was Pilate. While we know that all of this is happening according to the predetermined plan of God, this is the hour that Jesus was marching for, this, was, this had to happen, we know that, and yet we're also aware of all of the responsibility of the people around Jesus. And we see over and over again how they buckle under the weight of their guilt and of their pride. As I was thinking about that, a a line from The Lord of the Rings, probably not the book, it's just in the movie, um, (laughs) came to my mind, and it's this part on um, where Elrond, the elf king, talks about the day that King Isildur had the chance to destroy this terrible ring that was causing all these problems, and yet he didn't because the desire for power was too strong and he he held on to the ring. And Elrond says in that moment, he says, I was there the day the strength of men failed. Uh, And as I thought about that, the day the strength of man failed, that was this day. I mean, it's every day, but it was this day in particular, a day when, when Peter's strength failed and he sought to preserve his own life. It was the day that the strength of the religious leaders failed as they announced their final rejection of Jesus. It was the day that the strength of Pilate failed as he was swayed more by power and popularity than the voice of truth and the requirement of justice. As we look at this narrative, though, we should remember that it's, it's the words and the actions of the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities. It's in those words and actions that we find ourselves. We can see their guilt in, in the death of Jesus, but we don't point a finger at them as if they did something that we never would have done. Rather, they function as a, as a mirror of sorts. They reveal our pride. They reveal our arrogance. They reveal our sin and our foolishness. They tell us that our strength will also fail if that's what we're relying on. And in contrast to all of these figures that reveal our hearts, we see Jesus the man whose strength never failed. Though it seems that he's being controlled by all of these powerful men around him, yet he is standing firm. He is revealing what true integrity, what true power actually look like. 
And as we consider these verses in John, I want to take our big idea for today actually from another passage from 1 John or 1 Corinthians 125. And in that verse, Paul writes, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And I think that's in part what we learn from this particular passage. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. As we look at this passage, I pray that God would help us to see our weakness, our own weakness, in the, and see it reflected in the people of this passage, as well as the, the quiet and the omnipotent strength of Jesus, who is the suffering servant, and yet is also the king of glory. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. With that in mind, look with me at John chapter 18, and I'll begin reading in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him by yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Again, as we walk through this passage, we, we see ourselves in the Jewish leaders. We see ourselves in in Pilate even, we see our sin and our weakness and our pride. And therefore, as we think about these characters and what they said and did, we don't need to just talk about them, but we talk about us. So right at the beginning here in verse 28, we see the irony of our actions. The irony of our actions. If, if you've forgotten that the events of these final days in the life of Jesus were occurring during the feast of Passover, it's probably because that backdrop hasn't been mentioned since chapter 13, verse 1, and we were in chapter 13, verse 1 in November. So it's been a while since we've talked about the fact that this is all happening during the Passover festival that led into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
But here it comes up again, and it comes up in a way that reveals how sin blinds us so completely. The Feast of Passover, you'll remember, commemorated God's deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, specifically focusing on the night of the 10th and the final plague that God sent on Egypt. God told Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron that the angel of death was going to sweep over the entire land and all of the firstborn in every household would die. However, the Lord made provision. He made provision for his people to be spared. If they would take a pure and a spotless lamb into their home and then kill that lamb and spread the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house, then the angel of death would pass over them and their firstborn would not die. The lamb would die in the place of their firstborn sons. And so the people would be rescued by the blood of the lamb. God established this feast to commemorate this act of deliverance and also the crossing of the Red Sea that would occur uh, soon after this. Passover is closely connected to another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's, It's called that in major part because the feast involved not eating anything leavened and not just not eating anything but also sweeping your house and getting rid of any trace of leaven within your home. In the scriptures, leaven often represents sin. And so the Israelites in this act are focusing on on holiness and purity. They're cleaning their homes of leaven and they're cleaning their hearts of sin. And here's where the irony comes in. Because in verse 28, the, the Jewish authorities arrive at the governor's headquarters in the early morning hours, likely just as the sun is rising, and they're waiting for Pilate to come out and talk to them. And they have to wait outside, why? Well, because to enter into his home would be to defile themselves, to make themselves unclean, and then it would make it impossible for them to continue to celebrate this religious feast, this Passover festival. They have painstakingly kept themselves clean. They have swept their houses free of every speck of linen, and they don't want to negate that cleansing work. And yet, what are they doing? They're seeking to persuade Pilate that Jesus is deserving of death. D.A. Carson, the commentator, identifies the irony well. This is what he says. The Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover at the very time they are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of him who alone is the true Passover. Another commentator, Bruce Milne, states the application of the irony well well enough to merit back-to-back quotes. (laughs) And so this is what he writes. A similar tragedy is reenacted whenever people depend upon fulfillment of ritual observances to alleviate their consciences before God. Receiving baptism by whatever mode, taking communion in whatever church, attending worship with whatever regularity, offering prayers of whatever length, giving money of whatever amount in themselves, do not, have not, will not, and cannot save us from our sins and their inevitable judgment. Religion cannot receive redemption, achieve redemption. Ceremonies cannot save. Friends, our hope of salvation is found in a person. It is not found in religious practices. May God keep us from placing our hope in external observances and and remind us often that it is by grace that we've been saved 
through faith, and it is not of our own doing. It's a gift of God. Why? So that none of us can boast. Well, if we see our sin and the futility of our religiosity, then it, that is the result of the, the new birth of God in us because in our flesh, we all we reject Christ. And we're reminded this of this in verses 29 to 32. So we see the irony of, of what's going on in verse 28. But here in verses 29 to 32, we see the extent of our rejection, the, the extent of our rejection. How far will we go to reject Christ? And here is where we meet Pilate. What an interesting character here in the story of Jesus' trial. John refers to Pilate as the governor. He was uh, appointed by the emperor of Rome, Tiberius, probably about four years before this event. And his role was to keep peace in Judea. Uh, he seems probably to normally have lived in Caesarea on the coast, if you're a high-ranking official, of course, you're going to live on the coast. You're not going to live inland like this. And, but for special occasions, he would come to Jerusalem. And so on feast, uh, feast occasions, he would be in Jerusalem to make sure that peace was kept because there was a greater likelihood for uprisings to happen. And so he's there in Jerusalem, and they come to find him. And as he comes out, we find, out, we find that the, the Jewish and the Roman thor- authorities are working together again here just as we saw in the garden. Again, making it clear that it's not simply the Jewish people, but it's the entire world that is rejecting Jesus. It's the entire world that is participating in his death. Working together, I don't know if we could say they're actually working together. There's probably a good bit of tension here between these two parties. Some of it would have been due to past run-ins that Pilate and the Jewish people had had. And yet Pilate acquiesces. He comes out to the Jewish leaders and uh, keeps them from having to come into his, his house. Uh, we'll see in the narrative that this means he's forced to go back and forth between the Jewish leaders and, and Jesus. And that's sort of the pattern of this passage is Pilate comes out and talks to the Jewish leaders and then he goes in and talks to Jesus and then he, he comes out. But as he emerges this first time, he, he sort of opens the trial for Jesus. He says, what are the charges that you're bringing against this man? The response of the Jews is a bit exasperated. It's a bit frustrated. And it could be a bit guilty. They don't want to have to talk this over again. They just would rather it be over with. Uh, Their frustration, though, is probably because they'd already brought a case against Jesus to the Romans. That's how they would have gotten that band of soldiers that was in the garden with them. They've already talked about this. And yet now Pilate wants to rehash all the charges against Jesus and talk about this again, which just upsets them. Their frustration could also be the fact that they had to come to Pilate at all and they couldn't handle this situation on their own. And the reason they can't handle this situation on their own without Rome is because they're dead set on Jesus' punishment being death. And as those under Roman rule, they had forfeited the right to make a decision regarding capital punishment. Otherwise, they likely would have simply stoned Jesus, which had almost happened multiple times anyways. And yet this trial before Rome is part of God's plan. And we're again reminded of Jesus' full control over this entire situation. After the triumphal entry in, in John 12, Jesus announces that his hour has come. And then he says in John 12, 32, and, when, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. After which John writes this, 
He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Do you know when you're going to die? Do you know how you're going to die? (laughs) The reality is that none of us do. We don't know when and we don't know how. But Jesus, who has shown over and over again that he is in complete control, not only knows the hour of his death, but he knows how he is going to die. He knows the way that he will die. And what a way to die. It's been argued that in all of history, crucifixion was possibly the worst possible way to be executed. And here Jesus is so hated by his enemies and so disregarded by the world that they're going to condemn him to this gruesome fate. And they're going to do it through a mock trial filled with a bunch of false accusations and even a clear statement of his innocence. And yet still, he will die. The whole scene, I think, speaks of the callousness and the indifference that sin breeds in our hearts. Sin makes us callous and indifferent. An old saying came to my mind, uh, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to say, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Have you heard that before? It's true. Sin just sort of wraps its roots around our hearts until we see ourselves standing in this crowd content to have Christ killed rather than to bow our knee to him. Sin makes us numb to the pleadings of others. It makes us numb to the pleadings of God himself and we choose to willfully run into our own destruction. We choose to kill our savior Blinded by our guilt, we, we don't understand who Jesus is. We, are, we show the extent of our rejection. And part of the reason for our rejection is that we don't understand who Jesus is. We, we've failed to see him with true eyes. And so we miss what's revealed in verses 33 to 38, which is the uniqueness of Jesus' kingdom. The uniqueness of Jesus' kingdom. That's what we find in these verses, verses 33 to 38, in this further conversation with this, this conversation with Pilate. Because at this point, Pilate returns. He comes back inside to, to question Jesus. If the Jewish leaders want to pass a sentence of death on this man, then Pilate needs to conduct a proper investigation of him. And though we'll see that his commitment to justice is pretty much bluster and not substance. He begins his examination with this question. Are you a king? (laughs) What an interesting place to start. Are you a king? Surely this question was prompted by the Jewish leaders. Their concern with Jesus was with regard to his blasphemy, his, his claim to be God. That was the reason that they wanted to kill him. But that was of no concern to Pilate because gods were a dime of dozen, a dime a dozen in Rome. And so the Jewish leaders may have tried to help Pilate see that Jesus was was claiming to be the fulfillment of the promises made to King David. In other words, that that he could be a political threat to Rome. In that, he was was like that man Barabbas, who's going to show up later on, who was in prison for leading a violent rebellion against Rome. So Pilate says, are you a king? And before Jesus answers Pilate's question, he asks a question of his own. Is He says, is is this your own question or did other people tell you about me? What's going on here? 
I think Jesus wants to know if Pilate is curious about who Jesus is or if he's just repeating the charges of the leaders. I think it's a good question. I think it actually helps us to think about how we speak to others about who Christ is. We could say to those who come to us with accusations about Christ or questions about Christ, we could say something like, are you genuinely, are you genuinely curious about who Jesus is or are you just repeating the skepticism and the unbelief of the people around you? Have you formed your own opinions about Christianity or are you just kind of parroting the opinions that you've heard in the culture around? Where's your heart really at? So what's Pilate's answer? Am I a Jew? <laughs> the assumed answer is an emphatic, no, of course, I'm not a Jew. Pilate seems to be saying, my concern is not for the religious questions of the leaders who handed you over to me. Uh, maybe more bluntly, he's saying, the religious questions of the Jews have nothing to do with me. I don't care about any of that. Pilate just wants to know if this guy's going to cause political problems for him. He's not contemplating whether or not Jesus, Jesus' claims to be the Messiah and the Lord are real. And therefore, Jesus sets his mind at ease. And then, after he sets his mind at ease, he unsettles him. <laughs> he sets Pilate's mind at ease by talking about his kingdom, first of all, and saying that his kingdom is not of this world. So, as we, as we think about um, the nature of Jesus' kingdom, we first see Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. That's very clear. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. What is a kingdom? If I said to you, tell me, describe a kingdom for me. I think the natural way that we would answer that question uh, is in terms of territory, in terms of earthly power. A kingdom has borders, a, a kingdom has armies, a kingdom has palaces, a kingdom has positions. Uh, kids, if I said, draw a picture of a kingdom, those are the things you'd probably draw. Castles, palaces, large tracts of land. <laughs> but Jesus says, don't worry, Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. That's not what it's about. My kingdom is not rooted here. That's why he told Peter to put away his sword. That's why he, tells, he says here that if his kingdom was of this world, then he'd be gathering the mob that Pilate was afraid of. But there's no mob that's coming. It's not going to happen that way because that's not the way of this heavenly kingdom. Physical force and violence are not the means of protecting or advancing God's kingdom. Now, that may be something that we just sort of assume. Of course, physical force and violence are not the means of protecting and advancing God's kingdom. And yet, history has shown us over and over again that many have thought that taking up arms in the name of Jesus was the way to advance his kingdom. And even today, there are those who would violently fight sometimes with just vicious words, but sometimes with brute force, and do it in the name of Jesus. Fight for his kingdom. Or they'll seek to uh, attach some sort of religious power to an earthly government and claim that, that that nation is uniquely blessed by God. To which Jesus says, put away your sword. My kingdom is not of this world. To say that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world is not to say that Jesus' kingdom has no effect in the world. It's not to say that Jesus' kingdom has nothing to do with this world. In fact, the kingdom of Jesus has arrived to transform the world. The kingdom of Jesus has come to turn the world upside down, or maybe right side up. But the call of his kingdom 
is so very different from the call of this world. In fact, the, the way we advance this kingdom often looks like weakness, not strength. How is Jesus advancing his kingdom here? By walking to death. That doesn't look like the way to advance your kingdom. And that, that's hard for us to take in, especially in, the, in this world where the, the rich and the powerful are the ones that always seem to be winning. They seem to be the ones that are in charge. And we begin to think that if the kingdom of God is going to advance in the world, well, we better start fighting like the world because that's the only way we're going to advance God's kingdom in this world is we start acting like them. Into that impulse, Russell Moore offers us some wisdom. He says, much of the frantic outrage we see today is, in fact, a lack of confidence. The way of Christ is different, though. We, we have confidence in the ultimate triumph of Christ such that we are not driven to frenzy when people make fun of us or are hostile to our beliefs. Instead, we stand with the quiet tranquility of a triumphant Christ who said calmly to his executioner, my kingdom is not from this world. Shock and awe power is the way of the crucifiers. Kindness and gentleness is the way of the crucified. No form of Christian engagement sees Simon Peter's Gethsemane sword waving as strength and Jesus Christ Golgotha cross-bearing as weakness. Remember, the, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. And if we're going to be followers of Christ, he calls us to follow him in the way of weakness that leads to the growth of his kingdom. He calls us to the weakness of loving our neighbor. He calls us to the weakness of laying down our lives, even for our enemies. He calls us to the weakness of speaking words instead of swinging swords. This leads us into Jesus' positive statement regarding the kingdom and the place that we find true power. So we saw negatively that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but positively we find that Jesus' kingdom is a witness to the truth. That's the basis of his kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is a witness to the truth. Pilate seems to recognize that Jesus is some kind of a king. <laughs> Even if he doesn't fully understand what kind of a king he is, he sees him as a king, and he realizes that this kind of king, he's not a threat to me. But Jesus is not ready to let Pilate think that his kingdom is innocuous or, or harmless in some way. So he confronts him with the search for truth. At the statement of Pilate, so you are a king, Jesus says yes, essentially, because he's made it clear that he is a different kind of king, and then he tells Pilate the purpose of his kingdom. What's the purpose of his kingdom? It is to bear witness to the truth. Do you see that there? It's in verse 37. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. This is the reason for the incarnation, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus has not come to build an earthly kingdom. He's not come to sit on an earthly throne. He's not come to unseat Pilate. He has come to bear witness. He's come to proclaim. He's come to tell, to say something. He's come to tell the truth. The truth about God. The truth about sin. The truth about righteousness. The truth about judgment. 
He's come to declare who he is. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He's come to call sinners to repentance and to show them that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yet in proclaiming the truth, he's, he's not only revealed God himself, but he's also revealed who the true children of God are because it's those who hear his voice who reveal that they belong to him. If they hear him and they believe him, it reveals that they are truly of him because it's those who hear his voice who reveal that they belong to him. The Jewish leaders standing outside accusing him have revealed that they are not of God because they have not listened to the voice of truth, because the voice of truth is Jesus himself. And so too, as we proclaim God's truth, it's those who respond in repentance and faith who reveal that they truly are God's children. And if they reject the voice of Jesus in the scriptures, they have rejected God and they are not his children. So what about Pilate? Is he gonna hear the voice of truth? He responds to Jesus' words with one more question. Three words, what is truth? This is a place in the scriptures where we need just like a little button to press and we could hear how Pilate said that. <laughs> how, how did he speak those words? What was the look on his face when he said those words? Was this a genuine question? I think the fact that there's no answer given and that Pilate just sort of seems to ask this and walk away would seem to indicate that it's probably not a genuine question. We might imagine that it was spoken maybe with a wry smile or maybe some sort of hint of, of, of mockery, truth you say, <laughs> as if anyone can know that. Unlike the Jewish leaders, they had, they had a, a truth that Jesus was bumping up against. But Pilate seems to be a bit more of a modern man he seems to deny the, the fact that there is one truth. What is truth? It's whatever you want it to be. You have your truth, I have my truth. And we better, we'd be a lot better off if you just kept your truth to yourself and I kept my truth to myself and we'd all be fine. But Jesus has already made it clear that he is the truth and his life declares the only unchanging truth. So in our relativistic age, he responds to Pilate's question the same way that he responded in the garden to all the, to the questions about who they were looking for. Remember that? What is truth? Jesus says, I am. I am truth. Therefore, to kill Jesus is to, sneak to, is to seek to snuff out the light of truth. Well, for all of his uncertainty, Pilate knew one thing. He knew that Jesus didn't deserve to die. And so we see finally in verses 38 to 40 the, the innocence of Jesus' life. The innocence of Jesus' life. Pilate asks his question, what is truth? And he walks away. He heads back outside to the Jews and he says, I find no guilt in him. That should be the end of it, right? He's the authority. I find no guilt in him. And yet, in some strange 
effort to save face. He, he offers up the release of a prisoner according to some sort of Passover tradition. So he holds Jesus out before them, Jesus who was not a legitimate prisoner anymore. He'd, he'd just been declared not guilty. And he holds Jesus out, and he assumes that the crowd is going to release Jesus if he gives them the option of having a prisoner released. But then they don't. They've been swayed by the religious leaders, and instead of asking that Jesus be released, they call out for Barabbas. Barabbas, a, a rightly convicted criminal, he's stated here to be a robber, could be some sort of an insurrectionist who had raised up a violent rebellion. And now, what is Pilate going to do? <laughs> he had the chance to stand for truth, and now he's lost it. He set the stage for a prisoner to be set free while the innocent one is punished in his place. Hmm. Makes me wonder if, just like those uh, Caiaphas made an inadvertent prophecy, is Pilate giving us an inadvertent application? The prisoner set free as the innocent is punished in his place. Here, in the midst of the Passover, the innocent one, the pure, spotless Lamb of God, is killed so that a guilty man can go free. One more person to relate to. Not just the Jewish authorities, not just Pilate, but Barabbas. In him we see ourselves. We look at Pilate and we're reminded that the strength of men failed that day. They couldn't see the truth. They couldn't uphold righteousness. They couldn't uphold justice. And instead, they acted on their pride and they chose to extinguish the light of truth. But the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And in their act of killing the innocent one, they actually ensured that his never-ending kingdom of truth would start to fill the entire world. In seeking to kill his kingdom, they ignited it and caused it to spread as we keep the Passover feast in mind, we're, we're now taken into the upper room where Jesus transformed the Passover meal, declaring that the bread is his body broken and given up for us. He declares that the cup is the cup of the new covenant in his blood, the blood that washes away our sin. We therefore see here before Pilate, not just the voice of truth, but we see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What looks like defeat in this moment is actually our salvation because the weakness of God is stronger than men. And we discover that, that our hope is to admit our weakness and to fall on his strength. It's to admit that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and that none of us can come to the Father unless we come through him who is the truth. As we take this meal together, we, we don't take it as a means of salvation. We take it as a reminder of what Christ did to secure our salvation. So I would say if your hope is in Christ alone, if your hope is in his sacrificial act on your behalf, then I would invite you to take this meal with us. If you've not responded in faith to Jesus, the voice of truth, then I would ask you to simply let the plate pass today. We also ask that you've been baptized, not because we believe baptism is necessary for salvation, but it simply means you've had a good conversation with someone about your, uh, your 
your understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. Um, our practice is to pass the bread and then to take the bread all together, and then we will do the, the same with the cup. Uh, Jake's going to help me with that in a moment, but I'd like to give us a moment of silence just to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, uh, and then I will pray and we will pass the bread and then the cup. So let's have a moment of silence and remember Christ. Father, we confess together that we see, we see ourselves, see ourselves in these religious leaders that were relying on their own works and rejecting you. We see ourselves in Pilate, who was so filled with pride that he wouldn't bow his knee before you as king. Lord, we see ourselves in Barabbas, fully guilty, fully deserving of punishment, and yet set free because of your sacrifice. So Lord, we come to remember you. We come to remember that because your body was broken, we can have life. That because your blood was shed, we can be forgiven. Would you help us to remember you well now as we take this meal together? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.